Welcome to the creek. If this is your first time, like Ryan said, uh, there's a guest card in, in the vicinity of you. If you'll grab that, fill that out so we can uh, just start a dialogue, get some information to you, and uh, we can start a, an interesting conversation. If you've got your Bible, go to Colossians chapter 1. It's going to take me a while to get there, but uh, go ahead and be waiting on me. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the ends of the rows. You can take that, use that today. If you don't own a Bible, um, Merry Late Christmas. Put your name on your, on your gift and uh, take that Bible home. You can read it. It is yours. We uh, want everyone to have the Word of God so you can read it and not take my word for it, but uh, get into God's Word and understand what He is uh, teaching us. If you are new here over the last couple of months, uh, how we tend to teach at the creek is uh, exegetically or through books of the Bible, and uh, we're launching into a new book today, Colossians. I love teaching through books of the Bible. Here's, it does a couple things for us as a church community. Uh, I would have a tendency to shy away from preaching about certain things in Scripture. Um, there are some things that honestly just get uncomfortable. And uh, when we teach exegetically, God sets the curriculum and says, uh, here's what you're going to teach on. So through the book of Colossians, we're going to encounter some uh, subjects that, that may make some of you uncomfortable. I've just learned, let's roll with it, man. It's God's word, and, and here we go. Um, so it, it helps me uh, to stay uh, focused on teaching the word of God because I'm kind of like the Apostle Paul. I could probably get real feisty in an email um, or a letter, but when we get face-to-face, I'm kind of more teddy bear. And uh, that's like the Apostle Paul. When you read his letters, man, he can be like, and then he'll get to the church and be like, now what I was, you know, he doesn't doesn't sacrifice the gospel. He doesn't back down, but he just takes a softer approach. And so um, we're just going to teach through uh, the Bible and, and understand that. The other thing that I think it does is it protects the context. Uh, one of the things that you hear me say is context is king when we teach Scripture. And um, that, is, uh, that is something that we really want to make sure that we put a stake in the ground and understand that when we approach Scripture, when we uh, teach Scripture, even when we try to apply Scripture to our life, that we are teaching context. We're not pulling something out and making it the way we want it to sound. And uh, I think that helps when we teach through books of the Bible. Um, and so we are going to start in. We launched the church with the book of Matthew, uh, spent just a couple weeks teaching through the book of Matthew. Um, for those of you who are here, you remember that? Um, year and a half, couple weeks, eh, meh. Um, I can, and then we uh, taught some core value stuff, and uh, I made it through Christmas. Um, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. I'm glad we're moving on now. Um, I love, I told you, I love that 30-day stretch between Thanksgiving and Christmas, but I also love when it's over. Um, I need my routine back. I need my schedule. I guess I'm like Rain Man. I don't know. I mean, I need to eat breakfast at a certain time. I need this. Uh, so I'm, I'm ready to get back into normalcy uh, and let life start rolling and get in that routine. I like that grind. And so that's, that's who I am. If you're not, I'm so- sorry that it's over. We'll have a moment. Uh, okay, let's move on. Um, so uh, we are uh, now going to start into Colossians. Uh, depending on which forecast model, I'll play the weatherman, depending on which forecast model you look at, eh, 13 to 20 weeks. So, uh, um, and, and don't hold me to that because it could be another year and a half. I don't know. 
Um, like I said, we're just going to let God dictate uh, the curriculum, and we're going to teach the truth of his word. Um, but before we get into teaching Colossians and getting in and diving into this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, we've got some hard groundwork to do before we launch into it. Uh, one of my professors in seminary was taught a class called Grasping God's Word. Uh, there's actually a textbook on it. If, if for those of you that are more the intellectuals and like reading textbooks, you know, if that's your fancy, grasping God's word. He teaches through this process called a principalizing bridge. We tend to approach scripture and we want to read it at first glance and understand how does this apply to my life? What does this mean to my situation right now? When you study scripture, when you read scripture, you have to first understand contextually what's going on, who it was originally written to, who it was originally written by, and let's understand the context that, that they're receiving this letter in so then we can cross that principle bridge to see what is the biblical principle that God is applying to my life today. So we got to do this, this work setting it up. Uh, understand it like this. We're intercepting a letter here. It's kind of like fifth grade math class. You know, when you're just asked to pass the note and you get caught with it and the teacher's asking you what it's all about, Okay, that's where we're at right now. And by the way, if you intercept a note in math class, don't check yes, because you never know what you're checking yes to. Um, so anyway, uh, we're going to put ourselves in their world first. So to understand uh, Colossians or the city of Colossae, we've got to understand Rome because they're under Roman rule. And, and let's, let's kind of understand what the world looks like in their context. This won't be a far stretch because there's a lot of similarities between our society today, honestly. Um, but with Rome, before Rome, since Rome, there's never been anything like Rome. Rome ruled the known war world for about 1,500 years. Uh, the span of the empire was massive. Think of India to England being the Roman Empire. Uh, the things that they impacted in their world still have effect and residual impacts on our world today. What Rome did in the ancient world still resonates in our modern society. And there's three specific ways I want you to take note of that Rome has impacted their world. They changed their world as they know it. The first one was with the road system. By the second century, there's about 50,000 miles of roads in the Roman Empire, all leading to Rome. You've heard the statement, all roads lead to Rome? Well, they all led to Rome. This did, did a significant thing in their economy and in their culture. It shrank their world. Um, here's a side note. Some of those roads are still in use today. Some of the bridges they built are still in use today. You drive on any freeway in this DFW Metroplex, Take your pick, 820, 114, 183, any one of them, 35. You know, we're doing construction on every road. Here's something we could take from the Romans. They did it quicker, and it lasted a whole lot longer, okay? <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, because I was stuck in it this week. That's no fun, okay? That, that, that's a godly test for Matt to get stuck in traffic. I got to be moving. I got to be moving. So anyway, what this, ha what this did is it shrank their world. You think about the cultures, the ethnicities, the food, um, religion, all coming together because of the ease of travel. The only people who could travel before this were those who were wealthy and very courageous. But now with the road system, it's changed everything. Uh, 
what roads did for the Roman Empire, the internet has done for our society. When you talk about shrinking the world and being able to get information and, and experiencing different culture in a way that we, we couldn't 25 years ago. Let me, let me just say this to some of you. Uh, love the internet, but you need to breathe and unplug a little bit. The internet has shrunk our world so much so that if we can't get information like that, we get frustrated. I mean, the thought of doing research in an actual book, you're like, no, that's an antiquated concept. No, 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 no. It's click, baby. No, no. With all the Google, with all the information, slow down a little bit. But what the Internet's done for us, the roads did for the Roman system. It also brought about what's called um, Pax Romana or Roman peace, which is a very interesting subject. The the 1,500-year reign of Rome was fairly peaceful. Now, there was a little uprisings here and there, but for the most part, it was a peaceful reign. If you were on the outskirts of Rome, if you were an enemy of Rome, or if you were in the Roman army, though, you didn't know much peace. Uh, Rome was brutal in how they enforced peace. Yes, it's an oxymoron, but that's the way it was. But it was a very peaceful time, and they enjoyed this peace. The third thing uh, was Roman law. The Romans were great at developing and implementing systems, systems of government, systems of control, systems of law. Uh, They believed, and this kind of goes back to the Roman peace, but they believed if you have a society where people can be heard from and feel like their voice makes an impact, they're less likely to revolt against the governing authorities. They were very smart in creating these systems and had these laws. And the interesting thing about Roman law is they judged the action, not the intent. And they didn't get into going, well, this is what your intention was. They were able to really get in and judge actions so people felt like they were heard, they had a voice, and and there was this entire system that that fed into the peace. And so you have the world changing in, in this Roman Empire. And Colossae is a city in this empire. The interesting thing about Colossae is uh, that it used to be a pretty good town, booming town. Um, and uh, they kind of got left behind. There was an earthquake that devastated the region. And when the roads were built, the roads went outside of Colossae. So they missed out on the commerce and the trade. So you have uh, kind of a small town mentality now where the train used to come through. The only thing Colossae had going for them, um, and the name Colossae comes from, it's not because it's colossal or, you know, it's this big, massive city. They're named after wool. Um, The wool that the sheep produced had kind of a purple hue to it, and it was Colossinius wool. So (laughs) we're named after wool. Imagine that, Visitor's Bureau. How do we sell this? And then the other guy pipes up, well, we got the spring. Colossae had a cold water spring. Um, it just naturally produced cold water. There were three cities kind of in a triangle, triad area, um, that produced some different springs. Laodicea produced a kind of a lukewarm, bitter spring. Um, if you go to Book of Revelations, it's interesting because the church, uh, when the letter is written to the church in Laodicea, he says, you're lukewarm. You know, I'm going to vomit you out. They produced the, the lukewarm water. The other one is Hierapolis. They were a little bit higher. They had 
a hot spring. So that's where everybody wanted to go for the weekend. So if you're in Colossae, you're trying to sell them on wool, and we got cold water on your way to the hot spring. So, you know, that, that's where they're at. That's just the way it is. But um, Paul is writing to this church, and he's going to address some problems uh, in the book of Colossians, or this letter to the church in Colossae. Um, he is going to address some problems and really try to drive the, the church and the people in the city back to the roots of the gospel. Uh, the gospel had taken root in, in the city. Paul had never met these people. He's writing a letter from prison and he's, he's addressing these problems. The people in, in Colossae heard the gospel from Epaphras. Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul. And so Paul is kind of writing and saying, look, We've got to get back to the gospel roots here. These roots go deep, and you've let things sway you a little bit. One of the problems he's going to address is Rome is not your hope. What happened is the city of Colossus, they start feeling sorry for themselves. Well, the commerce is gone. The earthquake devastated everything, and, and we're just not able to handle everything. And we, just, we need help, and Rome needs to help us. And then they start looking to Rome to find their identity and who they are, their protection and their peace. And they begin to, to a little bit kind of get angry because Rome has bypassed them with the roads. And so they start in this self-loathing and start looking to Rome as their hope. Much like we do today, we look to L.A., New York, or D.C. for our identity or our hope. And we're going to bring some truth into this that our our. Our hope is none of that. Our hope is in Christ. And Paul's bringing them back to these roots that Rome is not your hope. The other thing he's going to address is is syncretism. Uh, Syncretism is the blending of faith and practices. When you think about the world shrinking and the availability of information in the Roman Empire, you see cultures, ethnicities, uh, people groups, religions, all these things starting to melt together and become this boiling pot of humanity. And what happens is you start to see the first forms of syncretism. Let, let me explain what this means. To the church in Colossae, it's, it's like this. Jesus is my main man. I've given my life to Jesus. My faith is in him. The gospel has transformed my life. And, and I'm all, it's all about Jesus. But my neighbor is a Jewish mystic and you know what? He's a pretty good family man. I like the way he treats his family. So I'm going to borrow a little bit of his religious practices so I can be a better family man. Jesus is still my main guy, but I'm going to borrow these other things. And my other neighbor, you know, he's, he's a druid, and outside of some weird stuff with animals, um, he, he, he handles some, some things in economy, and, and he's a good businessman, and so I'm going to borrow a little bit of his. And so we, we say, as Jesus is our main man, I'm going to borrow a little bit of this and borrow this and borrow this, and I'm going to kind of create my own new thing still around Jesus. And Paul's going to address this and say, Jesus plus anything is wrong. It's all Jesus, period. Jesus doesn't have a plus sign after his name. And, and the interesting thing is, is in, none of this stuff threatens Jesus, by the way. We tend to think it does. It doesn't. Jesus just knows it doesn't work. And so Paul is going to address this idea. One of, the, one of the organizations or one of the religions that Paul uh, is going to speak about in the book of Colossians is the Gnostics, Gnosticism. You get the word knowledge, gnosis from this. 
And the belief was, is that knowledge is where we have to track. That all material things are bad. Material things are evil. And so we've got to move past the material to the spiritual. And that happens through knowledge. Now, if you think about this with Jesus as my main man, that's not that that's, doesn't sound far off. Because, you know, Jesus says that, you know, don't put your treasure in earthly things. And so some of this is tracking right. And so I can kind of borrow some of this because, man, they have some great worship experiences. It's, it's all about the spiritual and these feelings and the emotions of it. And, and, and then getting to this point where we're more spiritual than material. Well, here's the problem. At the core of belief of Gnosticism is all matter is evil. All material things are evil. So if matter is evil and flesh is matter and Jesus is what? God in flesh. Therefore, flesh, evil, Jesus is evil. And so the Gnostics would say, well, no, 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 Jesus isn't real. He, didn't, he wasn't a human. He wasn't matter. He's this idea, this concept of God. And Paul's going to address this and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God in the flesh. See, what sounds kind of okay up front, when you start to dive into it, you realize this is not the gospel. And what happens is when we start looking somewhere else for our hope or we start trying to mix and blend things with the gospel because we like this concoction of Jesus and something else best, we get away from the gospel and Paul says, we've got to address this. The other one that he's going to address is legalism. Legalism comes out of Judaism, and and the thought behind this and the foundational premise of of legalism is that rules make you holy. My challenge with that, uh, if you grew up in a legalistic church, uh, welcome to the club, and and we've grown up, and, and, and this isn't knocking any churches we grew up in, because we still do it. We tend to think that rules create holy living. Or rules will curb behavior. Here's the problem. Rules are external. We, we can't legislate morality. Go back to the Roman law. They, ba- they base laws off of action, not intention. You can't make a law for your intentions. I can, we, can, we can follow a law. We have Old Testament law that says do not steal. We have laws in our current society that says do not steal. But I can't change. There's no law, there's no rule to say you've got to quit coveting what your neighbor has that leads to you stealing it. That's the problem with legalism. And and the reason so many people walk away from church is when we start putting these laws and rules on people without grace, we get to the end of it and go, you know what, I can't follow all these rules. I'm out. I'm tired of carrying the guilt from not being good enough for God. And, and we begin to move from grace into law. And the gospel is moving from the law to grace. It's not taking away the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish law, I came to fulfill it. The law is a shadow of the one to come. When you think about it, the shadow is Jesus. Jesus is now here. We have grace. We have God in the flesh. The good news is that, that we don't have to live according to the law because of grace, and grace transforms us from the inside out. 
I mean, I can, I can enforce rules on my kids, but here's the thing. I'm just trying to curb behavior. But when grace sets in, when the gospel transforms them and transforms us as people, then what happens is inwardly we begin to change our behaviors. That can only happen through, through God. In my youth ministry days, we were at a youth conference, and, and when you get pastors together, this can be a little bit of a, a train wreck sometimes, I'll admit. But um, we're talking about uh, just the generation. And uh, the couple pastors like, you know, it's ridiculous what kids are showing up to, showing up wearing to church. And it just started this whole conversation. And I've learned to be silent and not say a word. And this other pastor pipes in. He said, I, gotta, I wanted to say something to all this. Why don't you let God change their heart before you ask him to change their t-shirt? In churches, why don't we exercise grace and let God change hearts instead of trying to legislate morality? Let God do something from the inside out. And Paul's going to address these problems. Um, but this week, he, he gives a very encouraging beginning. I mean, he's getting ready to get in and lay it down. This is one of the deep, deep theology books of the New Testament. Um, when we talk about theology, there's a, a theological uh, box that we were talking about a couple weeks ago called the Christology or Christology. Paul is going to go heavy and deep into the person and the fullness and the completeness of Jesus Christ. And he's going to get very deep in theology. Think about this, a town that feels insignificant. God sees us significant enough to give them deep theology about who Jesus is. And Paul's going to address it. And so uh, getting to these roots and diving these roots in, Paul is going to begin to address this. Now we'll go to Colossians 1. Thanks for being patient with me. If you have a little marker in your Bible, go ahead and just slap it down in Colossians because we're going to be there for a few weeks. Um, That way when I say turn to Colossians, you're going to be like, I know exactly where it's at. For those of you who don't, there's a beautiful table of contents that I I have to refer to often. Um, Colossians, I'll start in verse 1. We're going to teach this and then then go uh, have some food. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. I love that. He opens it with grace and peace. Because they're living in this time of peace and, and they're, they're dealing with legalism. So he just, you know, he's just starting out. This is like, you know, starting out the phone call and not having the small talk. You're like, how you doing? Oh, good. Things are fine. You have a good week? Yeah, I had a good week. Okay. Now I need to talk to you about this. No, Paul's going right at it, man. Grace and peace. Okay, I'm, I, you're, you're dealing with legalism? Grace. You're looking to Rome to be your supply? God is your peace. And then he goes on to say this. We always thank who? God, we'll come back to that, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Understand this. This is a town that feels insignificant. They've never met Paul. Paul's in prison. And he says, I thank God for you because of the faith that you have in Jesus and the love you have for the saints. Now, saints aren't like saints like, oh, saints are the believers, that's, those are the, the, the converts. When we put our faith, our hope, our life in Christ, we are saints. Now, we're, we're not going to get into the title thing, and I, I, I said it in the first service, and, and it was funny. 
but um, don't start don't start the titles here. Um, Saint Matthew. I would be the patron saint of all things goofy. I think. Um, but he's saying, I'm writing because your faith in Christ is evident and your love for the saints is evident. The interesting thing that Paul's going to hit here in this encouragement and something we need to take away is that loving Jesus is not possible without loving the church. This is an interesting concept because, you know, we've, we've heard people say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Yeah, I love Jesus, but I don't want to have anything to do with the church. You can't love Jesus and hate the church. It doesn't, it doesn't compute. We've, we've kind of formulated this in the, really within the last several years because we've seen, uh, honestly, the sad uh, abuses and the sad behavior of some Christian leaders. And we say, I want nothing to do with the church, but I love Jesus. If, if that's kind of in your imagination, let me just, this is an unpopular idea, but Scripture calls you a liar that you cannot love God and hate the church. It's like this. Um, you come to me and say, Matt, we, we want to we go out to dinner with you, Matt. And we enjoy you. We think you're funny. You're a good-looking guy. Um, you're probably the, 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 the best person I know. Um, it's fantasy. Go with me. Um, I want to take you to dinner. We want to take you to dinner. All right? Let's plan it but we don't want you to bring Heather. Huh? We can't stand your wife. Okay, at this point, we're going to have a problem. Um, and, and you know how I said I can be like Paul where I could be strong in email and, and a little bit more like a teddy bear um, in face-to-face? This is where it would go from teddy bear to grizzly bear very quickly um, because now you're attacking my woman. And, and all of us men, we're, we're feeling that bow up inside, like, you ain't messing with my wife. I can mess with my wife. Uh-uh. Yeah. No. That's the same thing we got to consider. And when we say, I love Jesus, but, but his church is, uh-uh. Now, I'm not saying the church is perfect. I'll be the front of the line to admit the church has faults. And I'm not condoning some of the things of, that, that some of... Our, my Christian brothers and sisters are doing in the church. I don't condone that. But I love the church. They're my brothers and my sisters and I love them. I think one of the greatest strengths of a church is this. We're a family. I also think one of the biggest challenges of church is this. We're a family. And we feel the openness and the ability to reach out and really hurt people around us. And we've got to get back to loving each other. I mean, the, the grace and the mercy needs to be extended to each other. I mean, it, it, honestly, if we gather in this room and we, we read Scripture but don't let it change us from the inside out and we don't go out and love each other by being transformed by the love that we've been shown, we're no different. Uh, it, it's getting back to the idea of syncretism. Syncretism means... You know, I've got Jesus, but I'm no different than anybody else on my street. I'm no different than anybody else in my workplace. You've bought into a lie. We don't, we, that, that doesn't help us live in sync. 
with the gospel transforming us and the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, absolutely there's something different. And it needs to be evident. Our faith in Jesus and our love for each other has to be evident. Otherwise, are we really transformed? Is there something different about us at all? And we have to get back and check those. I mean, if the roots are in Jesus, there's going to be fruit that's produced as a result of the gospel. Let me read you, uh, go back and read verse 4 again. And I'm going to explain to you why they can love each other this way. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring, there's that word spring, from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. See, the spring that Colossae had, they didn't make it spring forward with water. It happened. They couldn't manufacture it. God was doing that. Uh, the, the earth was producing water. Same thing with this love. It has to be produced with God. I don't have the capacity to love people uh, the way I should. It's only through the Holy Spirit that I have the capacity to love the way I should. And he's saying, you can love people because of this faith that comes from God and also because your hope is in heaven. Now, there's an interesting thing about a hope being in heaven because it makes the things of this world honestly seem a little more petty. You know, when when my hope is on heaven, uh, I'm less prideful in trying to be right on earth. And what he's saying is your hope is rooted in heaven. For us, where's our hope rooted? I mean, do we spend time thinking that my hope is in heaven? And that doesn't mean I just sit around and, you know, ponder heaven and, and, and think about these things. I get busy working here because my hope's in heaven. Think about vacation time. And when you plan a vacation, you are thinking about that. You are thinking about that. And some, some of us, we overthink it and we check out and we end up not productive. But a healthy way is we think about that. That's a goal and we, get, we, we start getting productive because when we go on vacation, we want to be on vacation. We don't want the phone ringing. We don't want that project looming over us. We want to be on vacation. I want everything in the sand. I want to be staring out at the ocean. What, where's your hope rooted? The bulk of humanity, sadly, puts their hope in this. I'm a good person. Now, if you're a thinker on any level, you understand how silly of a game this is. Well, I'm a good person. Compared to what? What do we compare our goodness to? That I'm not as much of a jerk as my neighbor? That I'm a better father or better mother than the people at work? That I can raise my kids better than those fools at at gymnastics? Think, see how silly that is? I mean, here's, here's the scary thing about Scripture is that it's not just our wickedness that condemns us. It's that God looks at our righteousness, our goodness, as filthy rags. And God's saying, compared to the holiness of God, even your goodness falls short. 
Now, to me, that absolutely exclaims the need for grace and the need for the cross of Christ because we cannot get there on earth. We cannot be good enough. We cannot be righteousness on our own. We can't do it, period. And it takes someone standing in that gap. And that person is Jesus, God in the flesh that stood in the gap, hung on the cross, was placed in the tomb and resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we could be seen as the righteousness of God. So that when we stand before God, it's not our wickedness that's going to condemn us. It's not our goodness that's going to be seen as filthy rags. It's the righteousness of Christ through the cross of Jesus. And that's where my hope is rooted. That's where our hope is rooted. And we, we start to see things. It is, Rome is not our hope. D.C. is not our hope. New York is not our hope. L.A. is not our hope. The economy, the world market, our hope is not in the marriage. Our hope is not in making it through the divorce. Our hope is not in the job. Our hope is firmly rooted and planted in heaven. And that means we can be unmoved and unshaken through life. And it's because of that faith in Jesus. Then then Paul goes on. He says this, verse 6. I'll back up to verse 5. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Um, what's, what's Paul's saying here, your point, his point is, you've heard the gospel. Uh, I taught it to Epaphras. He heard it from me. He had a heart and a desire to go back home and to teach it to you. And so you've heard the gospel because all over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit. The gospel works wherever it goes. Paul's in prison and, and Epaphras hears the gospel, goes back, teaches it to his people. They are the fruit of the gospel. Think about this. This is about AD 60 that this book is written, this letter is written to the church in Colossae. This is less than 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. It takes a healthy root system to be able to bear that kind of fruit. There have been kingdoms that have tried to squash it. There have been wars fought to try to squash it. There have been people martyred to try to squash the gospel. And it does not stop. It keeps rolling. Because the gospel is not dependent on man. It is dependent on the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the good news. And the beauty of it is Paul saying it's working. It's, you're, you're a fruit of it. And to this day, we in Fort Worth, Texas, are a fruit of this gospel going to all the world. I mean, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it plugs into any culture and transforms it. I mean, we see it in in the church of Colossae. We've seen it throughout history. We sent Kidstan to Nepal a couple months ago, and they saw the fruit of the gospel bearing fruit. They saw lives transform. They saw darkness overcome with light. We have the beauty 
of seeing all of this play out. Think about this. Paul wrote this letter almost 2,000 years ago to a small town in the Roman Empire who had this thought that Rome was their hope and that they needed to blend these other things in order to, to be fulfilled. Now, 2,000 years on the other side of it, we have the, the, the amazing ability to go, was Rome the light or was Jesus the light? Because one empire is a reality that continues to grow and continues to bear fruit, and the other one is an empire that is studied historically. Now, both of them used the cross to wield their power. The Romans crucified people to show their power. Jesus allowed himself to be crucified to show his power. And we have the benefit 2,000 years later to see that the gospel continues to roll, that we are a product of the gospel, and that this will go on long after we are here. Once he comes back, it's done. But it's going to keep rolling. It's going to keep rolling. It's going to keep rolling. You go back to Genesis 12 when, when God said to Abram, through you, I'm going to make a covenant, a promise. All the nations will be blessed through you. Through this, this covenant with Abraham, you have the Messiah. You have the gospel there. God saying, my glory is going to go through all of the nations, through all of the earth. And from there, we have seen it roll and roll and roll and roll. And it works wherever it goes. It's not just blind faith. Some people think that, that Christianity... And the gospel is this blind faith that you cross your fingers and hope you're right. Um, faith is not given that way. Let me go back to verse 3. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish with this. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. The interesting thing that Paul's doing is he's not commending the church. He's not commending the saints. He's not commending Epaphras for for sacrificing and going back to his hometown to preach the gospel. He's, he's thanking God through all of the encouragement. He says, I thank God for the faith that you have and the love that you're showing. The interesting thing about this is, is faith is not something that we can muster. We can't fake it until we make it. Faith is given by God. And some of you have been coming to the creek for a little while and... and We've, we've had the conversations. You're, you're dealing with frustrations about your faith. It's just not happening. God's just not, he's not lighting it up for me. I'm not, I'm not getting it. I, I'm, I'm coming, <clears throat> I'm studying, but it's not, it's not lighting up. Let, let me encourage you with this. Keep pressing in. Keep pressing in. Keep asking questions. Keep seeking faith. Don't turn off your brain. <laughs> Keep searching, keep seeking, and ask for help. Even men in, in, in the Bible times would stand before Jesus. I, I'm reminded of the story of, of Jesus asking the man, do you believe I can heal your son? And he said, I believe you can heal my son, but help me in my unbelief. Even people who could stand face to face and look into the eyes of Jesus struggled with believing if what he was saying was really true. And they didn't shut down. They didn't walk away. They asked for help. He said, Jesus, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. 
Here's the thing. We don't turn faith on. Faith is not our gift to God. It's God's gift to us. It's God giving us the faith to give back to him to say, I believe. And if that's you, if that's you and your frustration, let me encourage you to keep pressing in. You know, get involved with with community. Walk with us to see that we're not a perfect church and we're not perfect people. Well, you probably noticed that when you pulled in the parking lot. (laughs) But you get the point. Walk with us. You have a safe place to ask questions. You have a safe place to continue to pray and ask, God, help me. God, open my eyes. Open my faith. Open my heart. God, help me in my unbelief. This may be for those of you who have never planted any roots in the gospel and the gospel has taken root in your life. I also deal with this. If you don't wrestle with this, uh, you, you need to wonder, is my faith growing? I mean, I constantly, God, give me the faith to see this. Give me the faith to understand this. God, give me the faith to continue to grow. And we press in together. And we don't give up. And we don't look anywhere else for that faith or that hope. But we look to Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your love and for your grace and your goodness. And thank you uh, for this letter to a small town that, that felt like they had been left behind. Father, we need your help. We need you to open our eyes, open our hearts, and and ignite faith for us. Restore our hope. Restore our soul. And Father, we come before you and we apologize when we have tried to add uh, our ideas or other ideas to the gospel to get what we want. And we submit ourselves to you and and, um, we bear our soul. You see it. There's nothing we can hide from you, but it's just refreshingly honest to lay before you and say, here it is. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I'm excited about. Here's what I need your help with. So, Father, would you give us that help? Open our eyes and our hearts and our faith. So that we can be lives transformed by the truth of Jesus. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.